Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 338 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for breast implant illness and explant support with Dr. Robert Whitfield. Breast implant illness is finally getting some airtime in the mainstream, and I'm just so glad that our friend, Dr. Anna Kabeca, connected us with today's guest, who is a plastic surgeon here in Austin, who has become quite the expert on this topic. Yes, we're going to speak to you in a moment of our protocol, just kind of a high level, 100 mile up approach for things that you can do if you are listening and have had breast augmentation and are considering explant or not even considering explant, but want to offset the toxicity or risk concerns. So we'll go over that in a moment. But before we do so, let's just chat on upcoming events. Yes, so Wellness in Wimberley is right around the corner. Uh, That event is coming up May 20th and 21st, and we've got about 20 spots left um, last time I checked. Um, This is going to be a fabulous two-day in-person foodist medicine workshop where you will meet Allie and myself, um, as well as other like-minded people. we keep saying, have you found your wellness tribe? Because if not, they're going to be there, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a really great two-day workshop with an open flow. So it'll be about four hours each day, 11 to 2.30 with Becky and myself. Uh, on Saturday, I'll be doing a functional medicine lecture. Then we'll do some breakouts with food as medicine workshop stations. Then we will be recording a live podcast, Becky and I, as a Q&A style, ask us anything where you can step up to the mic. And then following that at around 2.30 or 3, we'll swing on over to the naturally nourished market for a healthy hour and so that's optional add-on you can get half-priced sustainable wines Uh, you can just get to know other listeners of the naturally nourished podcast uh, make maybe some spontaneous dinner plans and uh, really just expand your commitment to wellness and continue to be inspired to make sustainable wellness changes and then on sunday we will be doing a interactive Uh, food is medicine cooking class. So that's going to be really excellent as well. Both days will include lunch from recipes that Becky and I have created, really food is medicine focused, of course. Both days will also have an optional add-on of morning movement. So whether it is a yoga flow or prana shakti dance class, we'll be offering all of that for participants. And you will get a travel guide, which will include my favorite lodging out in this area, as well as hiking trails, uh, shopping stops, restaurants, and so much more. So we're really excited for y'all to come out to the Hill Country check out the wildflowers, put your feet in the river, and really reground and recommit to wellness for you as well as maybe your travel partner. So this is not just for women. Uh, This could be your husband. This could be a family member. This could be, we've had some mom and daughter uh, groups, which is always really fun in these types of things, Uh, but really a great way to just kind of get on track and make sure you're committed to wellness and stay inspired in the journey. 
All right. Hope to see you guys there. Oh, and tickets are three seventy five yes. yes. for this two day jam packed pass. Yes. And when you sign up, you'll also get a guide to Wimberley so you know, you know, where to stay, where to eat, all of the things. Yes. Awesome. And then if looking to lodge with others, we'll help to coordinate that as well. So next up is our women's wellness webinar, which kind of we're, we're at this tail end of a lot of content that we've been putting out in the month of March and April now on women's hormones, you know, really from cycle regulation back a couple episodes ago when we talked about different eating styles and supplement strategies of follicular versus luteal phase, etc. Um, we're going to dig into that a little bit further in our wellness webinar from cycle regulation all the way through understanding your cycle for natural family planning or natural approaches to birth control and then ways to optimize fertility. So this would be very appropriate. We'll even be covering um, things like fibroids, PCOS, insulin resistance, um, very appropriate from, you know, teenaged girls all the way into our early 40s, truly. And then we will probably be doing another one in midsummer on perimenopause and menopause. This will be kind of more ages teens through 40s on hormone concerns and hot topics. We'll even touch a little bit on the vaginal microbiome and how that can be an important tool to regulate to prevent STDs and also reduce pelvic inflammation as well as UTIs, yeast infections, etc. So lots of important copy here. Uh, that's going to be on April 12th. It's free to participate. So check out the link in today's show notes and definitely make sure you grab your spot. Yes, you just need to pre-register. You don't need to pay anything. So just head on over to that link. And even if you're not able to attend live, um, that's April 12th at noon, even if you can't make it live, we will be sending out the recording to anyone who registered. Okay, so getting into today's topic a little bit, um, when we're talking about breast implant illness and explantation, there are some primary areas of consideration that we take. Anytime you put a foreign substrate in the body, there's potential for infection, autoimmune reactivity, bacterial imbalance, and more. We'll kind of uncover all of that in today's episode. And just want to kind of set the stage that this is a good episode if for anyone that is considering breast augmentation or that currently has breast implants. And by no means is this something to create shame or anxiety. It's really a resource to inform and empower. Um, I will note that at the time that this episode airs, we will have put out our breast explant protocol on AllieMillerRD.com. We've now worked with a good dozen plus individuals that have had breast explant surgery and we do like to handhold through the process. You'll hear a lot of themes that Dr. Rob Whitfield talks about and we've definitely seen uh, tried and true ways of managing oxidative stress, managing septicemia or bacterial infection, uh, preventing infection in the first place by employing a balanced microbiome and so much more. And I would say you can check that out again on AllieMillerRD.com. And then if you have implants, as we talked about in today's episode, as you'll hear, 
Um, it's just one potential stressor of the body. And so we want to think about our lifestyle and the host of factors of toxins or uh, stressors, which could be mold in the household or could be taking on a new career and not getting ample sleep and running on too high of adrenaline, if you will. Um, so definitely taking back to that functional medicine approach of considering all of your stressors and really honing in on those that are most influential in your body. I would say if you're a listener that has implants, I would consider these four formulas as basic essentials, starting with our cellular antiox, which is that combination of NAC or N-acetylcysteine with S-acetylglutathione, a very bioavailable form of glutathione that survives the stomach acidity. Um, and that paired with NAC, it's building block. We like that actually as opposed to liposomal glutathione, which is discussed in today's episode because NAC is a known biofilm breaker. So you get kind of that two for one. We're also adding B6 in that formula for you to aid in the activation of that conversion and support neurotransmitter production. So when we're talking about the brain fog elements and the mood disturbances, cellular antiox is going to be a great way to offset both the inflammation and the oxidative stress. We would highly recommend our Reset Restore Renew detox packs to just upregulate liver function and reduce toxicity on a grand scale in the body. And considering doing a semi-annual minimum 10-day detox using our protocol, we would recommend our Rebuild Spectrum probiotic, which is the multi-strain probiotic that includes the Saccharomyces boulardii, as well as the L Planetarium 99 and the blends of various forms of lacto and bifidobacteria strains to really harness the microbiome and ensure that it's working for your body. And then the Brocco Detox would be the fourth one that I would say would be a key player as a prophylactic prevention to having ill effects from the implants themselves. Sure. So lots you can do kind of on the forefront if you're just kind of milling this over, thinking about it. Um, and then we'll talk more in today's episode about how to recognize if there is indeed breast implant illness and what you can do about it. Um, we'll also have our extensive protocol linked by the time this episode comes out. Um, so lots more resources for you all there. All right. Uh, before we have Dr. Rob on the show, let's have a word from today's episode sponsor, Wild Foods. So wildfoods.co is where you want to go. Ooh, see what I just did there? Uh, for all of your pantry staples, um, anything from coffee to turmeric to medicinal mushrooms, every product that they have is sourced from small farms around the globe, and they take the mission very seriously as we do to fix this broken industrialized food system. And they believe, like we do, that real food is medicine. I personally am a huge fan of their matcha. That's the type of matcha that I use in my household. Uh, it is ceremonial grade, a vibrant green. I like to make matcha in the morning um, as an alternate to coffee or use matcha as a midday pick-me-up um, because I like to keep my coffee capped at about eight ounces a day. Um, wild matcha is going to give you that elevated amount of L-theanine and EGCG, so you're balancing your brain chemistry, supporting alpha waves in the brain, um, and getting about 10 glasses of regular brewed green tea in a teaspoon of matcha, and that EGCG has been shown as a potent antioxidant, reducing oxidative stress, 
free radicals, and supporting body fat burn. So that's a great thing to add into your cart. I would also check out their tea blends. Um, So from their coconut chai, which has a base of red rooibos, so a non-caffeinated, very warming blend with cinnamon, ginger, coconut flakes, cloves, uh, and crushed chili. We also have their Thai G tea, which is a green rooibos base, has lemongrass and really floral notes, um, bright and herbaceous. Um, and then a big superstar to add to your cart would be their Cocotropics Wild Superfood Elixir. This is a blend of reishi and shaga mushroom extract, as well as maca as an adaptogenic compound and wild turmeric in raw cacao. So it sips like a hot cocoa, or you can blend it into your fat-fueled coffee beverage, making a mocha, if you will, add it to your protein shakes, and it has a nice blend of cognitive enhancers as well as high antioxidant compounds in those whole food ingredients. Another one that I would lean into is their vanilla bean, um, which I love. Their wild hand-harvested vanilla bean, which you can use uh, as an alternate to vanilla extract without that alcohol. And then you're getting that aromatic property with a boost of antioxidants. You can check out all of these products, getting real food, real ingredients, and ensuring that you're getting some food as medicine boosts going over to wildfoods.co. Again, that's not .com. That's .co, W-I-L-D-F-O-O-D-S dot C-O. Uh, use Allie Miller RD at checkout, and that's going to give you 12% off of your order. All right, I'm going to read Dr. Whitfield's bio, and then we will bring him on the show. Dr. Whitfield is an experienced board-certified plastic surgeon. He completed six years of surgical training at Indiana University Medical Center. He remained there for his residency and then gained additional training in microsurgery and aesthetic surgery. He is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Medical Association. Dr. Whitfield focuses on providing clients with nutritional guidance, nutraceutical advice, personal genetic predisposition screening, non-invasive radiofrequency, minimally invasive radiofrequency, and surgery options for all treatments of the body. He's completed over 5,000 breast procedures since 2004, including over 1,100 breast implant removals and with and without holistic transformations with fat transfer. He has the largest series of explant specimens with PCR testing. While serving as the president-elect of the Research Foundation, he gave testimony at the FDA hearings in 2019 regarding breast implant illness. All right. Hey, Rob, uh, Dr. Whitfield, welcome to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to chat with you today. This is definitely a increasingly aware topic and of really high need. We have done various protocols to support many clients with explant, but haven't touched on it as a grandiose topic, if you will. So I think today will be really great. Yes. Um, so first I just kind of want to hear, um, I've had a few clients of mine personally and, and actually a personal friend go through explant surgery now. And, um, I just want to hear about how this came onto your radar, um, when you first, you know, started to see women having issues and how did that end up leading into you giving testimony at the FDA hearings? 
Sure. In 2016, at that point in my career, I had mostly done oncology reconstruction. So I trained in general surgery, plastic surgery, and a specific fellowship in microsurgery, hand surgery, aesthetic surgery, and oncologic reconstruction. And that all combined, I, I went and taught plastic surgery for several years at a university and concentrated on reconstruction for breast cancer, uh, head and neck cancer, and sarcoma, which are tumors of the extremities, uh, the bones, the the muscle, and the fat. And when I transitioned out of <clears throat> university practice into a private practice here in Austin, Texas, I really did the same things. Um, this was an underserved need in uh, Austin when I arrived. And at one point in 2016, I had a woman with breast cancer um, come for consultation regarding going flat. And from time to time, I had had patients come who had uh, desired just to be done with her reconstructions. And I went through her workup, did her physical examination, reviewed all of her history elements and everything and um, <clears throat> prepared her for surgery. And I had done this procedure uh, in the past uh, in cases of um, people who wanted to not have a reconstruction anymore, or maybe they'd had trouble with their reconstruction, whatever. whatever. And um Implant-based reconstruction is the most dominant form of reconstruction performed. My sister had it done. She's a cancer uh, survivor. And I did this uh, case for this woman. Everything went well with the case. Saw her on routine follow-up about a week later, and her pathology was negative. She had no recurrence uh, of disease, no evidence of residual cancer, and which is obviously, in that setting, the most important thing to rule out. But, <clears throat> excuse me, when I did her explant, I always take cultures of the area as I did um, with all my oncology patients to make sure there's no evidence of infections. And she had an E. coli infection. Now, going back to her exam and all of her laboratory analysis and review of her history, she had nothing, nothing on exam that would clue me into this. And now, for the audience, there's CLIA-based lab testing, which is typically what's performed in a hospital. You take something that looks like a Q-tip, you swab the pocket, and then you send it to the lab. They wipe it on a little uh, agar plate and then incubate it. And that's the that's been done for ages. Other way to do it is take a sample called a quantitative culture and send it down, and they'll they'll parse that out as well. And so this uh, patient had an E. coli infection documented that way in a hospital. And so I treated her for that. And I believe she put me on a Facebook uh, group that said I would do explant. And so after that, I just had people come to me um, unsolicited for explants. And um, in retrospect, all, all she ever had was fatigue on her, um, sorry, on her intake. I apologize for missing that uh, with the audience. But many patients who've had cancer or other you know, debilitating diseases will have chronic fatigue from yeah. uh, bone marrow suppression or what have you. So that was a pretty common thing that I would see. And actually, once I treated her, her fatigue was completely gone. Wow. And so bacteria is one of the driving causes you would say of explant illness of implant illness, excuse me. So I think for my, I've, so I've done this for the last, uh, well now it's seven years and, uh, I've done over almost 1200 explants at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think, Breast implant illness on a whole is inflammation. And, mm -hmm. you know, we link illness with inflammation, we link aging with inflama inflammation. And 
you know, there's genetic predisposition to how you manage inflammation. And then there's environmental factors, there's other stressors. And then, you know, having a prosthetic device, whether it's a hip, knee, or breast implant, tentacle implant, cardiac implant, neuro implant, whatever, is not a great mixture. Mm -hmm. And so what I see is people may do well for a period of time, and then something happens. There's some event. Um, it may be, you know, changing homes, work, leak at the house, so something happens. Um, and when you go back with a fine tooth comb, you can almost figure out when it happened. Some people just do bad right away. Um, I can consider all those like my my folks who have this kind of, you know, low grade biofilm or, or low grade infection or something like that. And when you explant them, they do well right away. And then there's a group that takes a little bit longer. Maybe they've worked with integrative medicine. Maybe they've done detox. Those folks take, you know, two, three, four months sometimes. And then you'll have a group that takes a really prolonged period of time. And that's your group that has really com uh, compromised uh, immune system pathways. And it, they may not methylate well. They may have a poor glucuronidation pathway. Um, they may have poor vitamin D metabolism. Um, antioxidant pathways are poor. So they're just like, they have no leg to stand on in the battle. Sure. And so prophylactically, if we are looking at, we want to get deeper into uh, breast implant illness, but prophylactically, if we're listeners have implants and they maybe don't have the finances or they maybe aren't ready emotionally to go forward with explant, would it make sense to be on a prophylactic protocol to do like a semi-annual microbiome gut cleanse to incorporate compounds that would regulate bacterial imbalance and support the microbiome or to be on NAC or glutathione to have some of those biofilm disruptors and high antioxidant dosage? So I think it depends on your personal genetic predisposition. Um, so I have a lot of uh, breast implant illness patients who have a really poor detox pathway with glutathione. Sure. So I would always use like a liposomal oral to start, mm -hmm. engage it that way versus a push IV. I don't, I don't promote that without knowing genetics because I've seen people get really ill. Mm -hmm. um, so I think understand your personal genetics. Um, we do a lot of genetic testing. It's been like ever since I was in college, I've been super interested in it. And I've, I believe eventually allopathic medicine and medicine in general, you know, will individualize care more and more and more. That's how we approach it here is, as many clients as I can really, I want them to know their personal genetics so that their decision-making is really geared by what's in their best interest rather than- you What's know, their Achilles heel, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It's not like the fad diet. Maybe <laughs> maybe you should be on a keto diet because you're a, a great metabolizer. Maybe you should not be vegan because that's just super hard for your body. Like if you don't know these things, mm -hmm you're going to you potentially cause yourself a lot of of you know harm just by trying to do these things and you're not really enzymatically suited for it which is more of what you said with the gut bi microbiome cuz i mean as you can imagine in my office i see a lot of women with gut problems sure. and um i for all intents and purposes i have a recovery program that really focuses on your genetics your nutrition your hormone balance your toxicity testing and your food sensitivities so that i can get better outcomes and i I think that's why we differentiate. I I do all this with our clients on the front end, just like you're describing, like, should you do this annually? Well, yeah, the answer is yes. Most definitely. You just You want to do it in the right 
way that suits you based on, you know, like I said, those uh, always go back to your genetics and, and for women too, like if they have high estrogen or estrogen toxicity based on metabolism characteristics from their genes, I mean, you really got to control that. Sure. Like a COMT, giving them some SAMe and making mm -hmm. sure they're in that secondary. Love that. And so I like to put people on DIM who have a bunch of that too. Sure. And it just smooths them out. So the, those people who've had PCOS, endometriosis, bad periods, horrible menstrual pain, heavy, you know, heavy cycles, all this stuff, you'll see them change. Yep. And, and they're like, and, I didn't know I was even coming to you for this, right? right? <laughs> I just right. thought you were going to take my Mary in the coal mine was already yeah. there. And now this is just exacerbated when you threw a foreign, you know, compound in the body yeah. for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, um, I, I did a show recently and like trying to explain this. Why isn't this in a medical diagnosis? Well, it's not in the inter international classification of diseases, right? It's this, you know, conglomeration of inflammation that most people can't really understand. And it's mm -hmm. taken us better part of six years to six plus years now to figure it out. And I still learn more all the time from my clients and try to help them best we can, especially with their gut, which is, you know, we have a whole team just devoted to that now. Cool. I love that. I want to get into more of those solutions, but just kind of on the forefront as we're teeing this up and setting this up, um, what would commonly be some more of the symptoms that we would see, you know, in breast implant illness? So you mentioned the chronic fatigue, kind of brain fog. What else are we looking for and what are you finding in your intakes? Um, and I also want to talk maybe about like the autoimmune connection, if that's something you've seen. Yeah. Sure. Maybe not compounded by cancer for right, the right, right, otherwise right. healthy woman that all the tests are coming back normal and they're being told it's in their head. <laughs> yeah. So if you have quote unquote, brain fog, you have memory loss. You can't remember where your, your keys were put. You have trouble remembering your kids' names, your friends' names, things you did, can't find your words, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, you know, dry mouth, dry eyes, uh, shortness of breath, tightness in the chest, irregular heartbeat, maybe sinus tact or just a rapid heart rate, muscle and joint pain. And then if you have swelling, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, I, I think, you know, when I get that kind of pattern, I mean, I'm already trying to figure out like your environmental exposures. And if you, you know, I, obviously people are coming to me because they have breast implants and they, they want me to tell them, you know, is this my issue or not? Right. And, and so it doesn't take me that long to figure out kind of from their story, the pattern recognition that I'm used to seeing after several thousand consults about this. So those are the main symptoms. And I'm super critical in looking for mold. In Texas, mm -hmm. I consider everybody to have mold. Yeah. Sure. So if, if you're coming from California, Florida, the Gulf Coast, I'm going to think you have mold. If you're coming from Northeast, you're going to have mold or Lyme or both. Right. So, and that's just, I mean do you find that coexisting because they have all these other detox problems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And, and, um, the autoimmune element, that was, um, something that I found, you know, with my client, um, we kind of traced back when she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and, you know, the thing that preceded that was getting implants at age 19. Um, same thing with a good friend of mine who got her implants at 18 and, and, you know, was diagnosed with this rare esophageal motility disorder that was autoimmune in nature. Um, and so I'm curious if you see that as well, where the body's, you know, recognizing there's a foreign object here, and then it's kind of cast 
keeping up that autoimmune cascade. Yeah, before I hopped on with you, I just did a consult about this and patient had a specific autoimmune uh, disorder. And I said, well, did your mom have that or something like that? And she's like, yes. And so it comes back to like your genetics, sure. whether mm -hmm. it's an HLA problem or is it a specific mutation that we either don't know or is it a combo of immune pathway dysfunction? Because autoimmune diseases have been around since the 1700s. Sure, sure. Breast implants have been around since 1962, basically. So- when I was specifically doing, you know, recon, I would say, you know, if you were coming to me, when we go through your family history and you do have this motility disorder in your family, or you do have lupus in your family, or you do have Sjogren's or lichens or uh, rheumatoid, of course, I'd be like, well, let's find another way to take care of you than put an implant in you. Sure. Right. Because it's just a foreign body that, whether it's a hip, knee, breast, dental implant, cardiac implant, neurologic stimulator, Yes. It may not be in your best interest to have that. Sure. So it's another one of those kind of antecedent driver components. And that would be the the cost to benefit ratio of seeing. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to lose a limb versus, you know, have an implant. Okay. Right. Um, that's a trade-off. Uh, maybe you need a neurologic stimulator just so you can function. Um, there's lots of reasons that these things, right. you know, have to happen. But when I was doing oncologic breast reconstruction, I, I used to use autologous reconstruction predominantly for that reason, especially in cases like that. So I I often just ask, like, and maybe they don't know their family history worth a darn, and that's always complicated. So these are all, you know, little factors that when you add them all up, get you into situations that like your clients, um, they're having these troubles and um, maybe could have been just avoided you know, with right. a little bit more work. And I think this conversation of, again, this kind of N equals one or this individualized care, it, it's kind of resonating about this concept of allostatic load, right? Or the individual's threshold of stressors. And when he said HLA, it's like, okay, well, is that person, so what if that person went gluten-free, you know, because <laughs> we know that gluten's a big irritant to those sure. genetic individuals, then could they have the, the implant, you know, is there a like trifecta of if choosing to do this, if that's an important decision for you personally, and, uh, you've made peace with that and you know, there's a risk factor. Do you have a provigilant, I guess, protocol beyond those that go forward with explant to, reduce the stressors in other, I guess, buckets, if you will, of, of their life, taking into account those individual stress points. Yeah. I, these days now I'm getting asked about that more and more and more. Can I, you know, can decide, I mitigate it, right? <laughs> yeah. Can, can I, can you help me on the front end, Dr. Rob, figure this out so that, you know, I can, you know, manage this, you know, properly. And, you know, of course you, what we'll fall back on is, you know, cut out gluten you know, cut out dairy, um, don't drink beer or wine, you know, take appropriate supplements based on if you don't have your genetics, you know, best available information and, you know, find ways to reduce inflammation. And obviously those are all things that, you know, it's not intuitive, but sure, that's what my program is. And I'm just trying to manage all of it now in the face of somebody having, you know, a really inflammatory process. Mm -hmm. So any way you can cut down your inflammation and or pick your parents better, you're going to have, you know, more success with that. Sure. Um, I'm curious, does the type of implant 
matter? Like, do you see this across the board um, with, you know, the silicone versus the saline is one more prone to illness than the other? Is it the, you know, timestamp like of older implants that maybe needed to be switched out or maintained um, or does that matter? Yeah. I mean, those are great questions. Right now we have an IRB looking at my uh, over 1100 cases and or explants and I don't have the exact answer. I've seen it with every type of implant, smooth and textured saline and silicone vendors from this country, South America, Europe, Asia. So that's, it's, it's independent of that, honestly. Now textured implants are more closely associated with anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And then there's a newer cancer squamous cell carcinoma that's associated with breast implants. And so that's all very discouraging. So I send all of our cases out for pathology diagnosis, rule out those uh, malignancies. And then we send everything out for biofilm examination through a company that does uh, next-gen sequencing with quantitative PCR, which is fancy for if there's a piece of DNA there, it's going to be found. Mm -hmm. And so you'll know what's there. And so I call it, you know, I, I dot all the I's and I cross all the T's to make sure that you're not coming to me three months later, six months later, three years later. Hey, did you do all this? Do I have any of this left or is this a problem now? So we've tried to lead the way uh, with providing that amount of, of, you know, a level of, of rigor. So the patients have all that. Yeah. So I know there's a really um, important nuance of like getting the entire capsule out. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's not as simple as going to any plastic Perfect. surgeon who maybe doesn't have this experience. Right. right no doubt. It's pretty funny. The, I just did this console and it's, you know, it's a, this is a, I was a second opinion. I was like, one doctor said, oh, you don't need to take the capsule, capsule out unless it looks sick. That's literally, I'm paraphrasing this. And mm -hmm. just for your listeners, that just is ignorant. Mm -hmm. All right. So you can't see microscopic bacteria. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I can't see it. So right. uh, the, the way I figured that stuff out is I send it off to a lab and they do DNA amplification of these fragments of the tissues and, and they find that for us. So, and that's through a biopsy, gonna... sorry to interrupt, but that's done, you know, before explant you're saying, or this is at the explant time that you're swabbing and doing those, those assessments. Yeah. So it's not a swab. It's actual think of like a thumbnail piece, the size of your thumbnail okay. that I take off the capsule after we've taken everything out. It's on the back oh, table. Got it. Mm -hmm. And we send that off as a dry specimen and it's evaluated. And I've used this company since February of 19. Um, and, and they provide mm -hmm. us, you know, a tremendous amount of information and, and clarity for our patients about what is actually around that device, because it's the inside of the capsule up against that device. Sure. And so are there any, uh, when someone's in consideration of explant objective minus, you know, of course there's this subjective symptoms and maybe considering genetic weak points or, um, what biomarkers or objective labs are available or are you doing on patients that are on the fence that kind of want proof or, um, is there anything that you lean on or use in decision-making process or recommendations? I still, um, in short of a really studied biomarker, um, the traditional ones of said rate and CRP, I've found not to be helpful because if you just have biofilm, 
your body's fighting the fight, but it's not mounting so much of a systemic response that's measured because those are super nonspecific. Mm-hmm. And there are some novel ones coming out, but I don't have enough experience with a specific novel to say this yeah. biomarker is the one I hang my hat on. I think mm-hmm. we'll have that, you know, in the near future. Um, I hang my hat on, you know, personal genetics and the combo of a tox test and food sensitivity test, the natural um, blood counts and um, kidney function, liver function, um, hormone assessments, they provide color around what you're looking at, but they routinely will disappoint if that's all you're doing. You will not find what's really, you know, you can't find a phthalate level or a glyphosate level on a, a, you know, a CBC or a standard workup that (laughs) way. So, and that's where all that falls off. And I even have people that see functional medicine and integrative practitioners, and then they're not looking at like mold and some of these things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you better be looking at that because, you know, I hear you, you know, I, I think if you listen closely enough, they'll, you can almost tell when they've been exposed to mold. Mm Mm-hmm. They'll give you like the answers. If you're just listening close enough, you'll, you'll get it in the, in the interview with the client. And what are your best, you mentioned mold a couple of times, and um, I'm just curious what other than explant and removal, your primary treatments are in that sense. Yeah. Uh, so we used to do a lot of, you know, glutathione challenges and then tox tests to figure out if they have ochratoxin, aflatoxin or some penicillium. Mm-hmm. Uh, toxin and then different binders and i've used you know oh gosh so many at this point um now we're um using more cell core binders um i have a prescription strength binder if in fact we need to go that route if somebody's having severe problems especially neurologically but Mm -hmm. most of the time it's about um their diet and then their gi map and trying to get them on the right track with, you know, what they're eating, what they're putting in their body. Mm-hmm. I, I would, you know, for lack of a better word, because most of that is is not well understood. So we spend a lot of time on that. We have a full-time nutritionist basically now for that. Love uh, it. We love the food is medicine yes. connection. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, yeah, you mentioned um, lab testing performed on, on patients' implants, obviously when they've been removed. What are the things that you're typically finding, you mentioned like the E. coli, um, what else? I, I know my client, we had to do a pretty extensive candida protocol, um, with her. She had more yeast overgrowth, but well, we prophylactically yeah, put them yeah. on our six week beat the bloat cleanse, uh, actually right at the time we sure. do a pre cleanse pre explant. And then we do a post gut cleanse just to have that coverage is kind of yeah. our approach, right? Yeah. Like, let's just plow the gut, reseed it, reset it. Um, because of the, the risk factor with that, um, mold toxicity, but let's talk about that, the bacterial role with the, uh, capsules. Yeah. Just so the listeners all can get this. I've done 1100 explants plus, and I've only had five cases of, of fungus. Okay. So that's not the dominant. It's something called key bacterium acnes, which is in greater than hundred thousand, uh, colony forming units per square centimeter of skin on your chest, face, neck shoulders and that's predominantly the bacteria involved it's not anything new it's it's published in papers around the world and that's what i see 
So I think there's everybody's, you know, I see exposures to mold. And so that's a, you know, you're inhaling spores mm -hmm. and typically your liver's got to deal with that and kick it out. And if you don't have effective detox from a, a pathway in your liver, whether it's, you know, completely up to your glucuronidation pathway, that's where the majority of it is. You just can't kick it out. And that's, to me, that's what I see the most of um, that problem. And certainly I've had people have horrible candida problems um, yeah. that get better after explant, whether they're recurrent vaginosis or UTI. Yes. Um, th those were the predominant ones that those will, those will resolve or become manageable after explant. And then I'm assuming obviously they're on IV antibiotics during the surgery. So that's kind of already hitting them with that atom bomb. No, we just give one dose. Oh, just um, one dose. Okay. Yeah. The, there's a national uh, standard of care for that. It's called the, the skip uh, protocol. And it's just one dose of IV antibiotics, 30 minutes prior okay. to incision to reduce skin site infection. I don't put anybody on antibiotics post-op. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, let's talk maybe about um, some of the other elements of your recovery program. And um, so, you know, we're addressing gut health, we're addressing toxicity, um, heavy metals. What are like the nutrients that you see as essential in this process? Um, what are the things that your nutritionist is recommending in terms of food and supplements? So we have a, a, a package that we do for immune support and it it's to augment the glutathione uh, pathway, methylation pathway, antioxidant pathways, and vitamin D. So that's kind of the core. And based on your genetics, we may, you know, recommend other things based on your hormones. And then we do uh, biologic, uh, I'm sorry, bioidenticals in my office because I want to buffer out cortisol as much as I can. So if you have, you know, no detectable testosterone, we're going to recommend that you use that around the time of surgery uh, for recovery purposes. And then if someone wants to remain on that, you know, we can guide their practitioner or, or if they're local to us, we'll take care of it. The, the kind of diets, I get people on higher protein diets because that's really, whether it's with a combo of, of whatever protein source they prefer. We use a, a lot of pea protein because it's just stripped down. There's nothing in it. So it's, it's more of a non-reactive thing. And then um, we use aminos uh, and and those are the things I concentrate on. Everybody gets typically an ALCAT 250 and based on their sensitivities, they can guide them uh, not so much on an elimination diet, but more of a practical diet that meets, you know, their nutritional needs, but doesn't stimulate them as much. Sure. Mellow out that inflammatory immune response based right. on their feedback. And um, how about, do you do uh, glutamine and do you do specific gut rehab in individuals that are showing metal toxicity or showing signs um, in their, you said, I think GI map is the assessment you're using there. So secretory IgA is off. Um, are you using uh, kind of leaky gut protocols in that sense as well? Yeah, I have um, our, our gut health specialist, our she's had an explant and breast implant illness and she runs that portion of our program. So if, if you have a bad GI map with high secretory IgA, like you mentioned, and lots of other abnormalities, then you're going to go into a protocol of detox, you know, typically after explant so that things can get reset, just like you said, 
and then they're they're more supported both emotionally and then for their gut health with us instead of being you know sent out to fend for themselves and and there's a lot of protocols and and you know they vary obviously um we're just trying to like for each case the best we can do for each patient get them in what we feel has worked the best for our large amount of clients with this problem sure so the explant is kind of that first initial jump in and then you're taking that functional medicine wherever they are at next level to optimize on the front end, what we try to do, because so people people are very anxious to get explants done, and sure. I try to tap the brakes a lot and try to get as much of the information around why they have so much inflammation. Because once again, like uh, implant is just a component of this. So mm -hmm. if I take that out and I don't know what your food sensitivities are or your hormones or your toxicity, that, then what am I really doing for you? Right, it's another whack-a-mole. Another yeah. thing's going to uh, present. <laughs> Right. I did a surgery for you that's probably going to make you even further behind the eight ball in the short term, not the long term, but the short term. Because mm -hmm. you, I can operate, yeah, technically all day long, I can do that for you. And, but if we don't have these other aspects sorted out, you're just, your recovery could be just difficult mm -hmm. in terms of your diet, which is the main thing that helps you recover. If you can't eat and drink and absorb, then you're never, going to your your recovery rate is going to be slowed dramatically sure and i saw um like proteolytic enzymes on your website too like things like that i think you're incorporating oh, post-surgical yeah. protocol for yeah, any yeah. kind of surgery I yeah like um so obviously the high protein the proteolytic enzymes really helping with um you know reduction of scar tissue and um just helping them to kind of bolster that recovery as well uh can you explain just for listeners and even me, myself, I'm curious when a woman decides to get an explant procedure, what kind of reconstructive options are there? Are we, are we talking about then just going complete flat chested? Uh, is there options of using other parts of body tissue or, and, and then nipple reconstruction? What are kind of the things that we would see on that end point? Yeah, for a cosmetic patient, it really depends on how they started. If they started, you know, as an A or B cup, uh, B cup breast, then you'll, they're typically going to revert back. Obviously, um, if the implant was large, that's more of a, a problem because it stretches out skin. Mm -hmm, so right. then you're you're dealing with trying to manage skin, and there's different, you know, um, options you have. Not so much to reshape the breast tissue, but to help with the skin. So you may excise skin to help tighten it, but not overdo it because everybody will heal differently of, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's, there's ways to vary it today. I just saw somebody who has a relatively wide breast, so that needs to be narrowed. Otherwise, when you take out their implant, they'll be flat and boxy. Mm -hmm. okay. So I will reshape and do uh, typically what's called a vertical lift or, you know, on the internet, it's affectionately known as the lollipop. And you just have to tangentially or, or carefully excise the skin around the circle, which is the areola, and get that to match what's now going to be a smaller breast. Because you don't want to leave a wide areola on a small amount of breast right. tissue. That that won't look right. Right. And then if they have an existing, which this uh, client I saw before I hopped on with y'all, had an existing um, scar pattern. So I'll utilize that and help reshape it and get the you know tissue out of the armpit kind of swing that out of that area and put it back where it belongs on the chest and then if they're amenable to it and have the tissue um to 
you know, borrow from one place and, and help another, I'll try to really help the cleavage area and the upper portion of the, the breast, because that's the area that when you take implants out of from the client, you're looking down and you see all this cleavage. And when the implant's gone, you don't. Right. So that's the area I try to work on to help both aesthetically from obviously visually, but emotionally, because that's going to bother people. And it's going to be a huge change. If you've had your implants for 20 plus years, that's what you're used to, to seeing and having. And um, I try to offset those as, as much as I can so that we're taking good care of everybody. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Totally. I, I imagine there is a big emotional component to all of this. Um, very, very much so. Let's talk about um, when you gave your testimony for the FDA. So was it specific about a type of, of implant or how did you end up there? Yeah, at that point, I was president-elect of, of the Aesthetic Society's Research Foundation, and um, those implant hearings uh, were planned, and there was a lot of dialogue around, you know, the discussion points that the, the FDA had, and um, I was kind of earmarked to talk about breast implant illness because of my experience starting in 2016, so that would have been March of 19, and... They did not give me a dedicated time, so I gave public testimony. So I got in line and everybody got five minutes and you got to go up and and give your thoughts about, you know, what you believe from a research standpoint or, you know, a standpoint of like what's next with this. And I followed a a woman who had had an incomplete resection of her capsule and had left her with cancer on her ribs because she had anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And so that was a very obviously disheartening thing to follow and hear uh, because it's not actually difficult to do a capsulectomy that removes things intact. We've done it for cancer and tumor resections, obviously, you know, throughout history. So I said, you know, our plan from a society standpoint as the president-elect of the Research Foundation was to fund research to help advance understanding of this. And so when I became president, we did that. We funded a, a project looking at psychological aspects, the basic science aspect, and a clinical research project, um, all of which have been published really and, and provided some context for this, but they're very early. There's not enough data. Uh, most of those are you know, what we call pilot studies are very early in the experience. And my personal uh, experience is over 1,100 explants now. So we need to add that. And ours is, or my studies being looked at uh, and evaluated for publication. So the whole point was just to add more to the understanding so that, you know, when you went to a doctor, the doctor was considered to have, uh, you know, a knowledge base that would allow them to recognize a pattern of disease and then prescribe a, you know, a therapy that would help you here. Right. We're a little ahead of the curve because I've had six years of taking care of this as an issue and learning about it and, and being, you know, more put in a position to evaluate the research aspects of it, the clinical aspects of it. And then in my personal experience with patients and surgery, it's just a different level of experience. So when I hear somebody speak about it, you know, from a client side, whether they're, you know, on a discovery session 
remotely on video or if they're in in person in my office in Austin, it's not hard for me to pick up the pattern and recognize it. Right. I think, you know, that's what we want to get, you know, both allopathic and and naturopathic and integrative practitioners. We want them all to recognize the pattern so they sure. can help the the support the patient so they kind of understand like, yeah, it's not in the patient's head. Right. It's it's, it's systemic and you know, the implants a component of it, so they can refer to someone like me or they can find a practitioner in their area who understands it and you know can take care of those clients. And then we're serving the client and taking care of them. Uh, right now, we're not doing a great job collectively of that. Right, I think it's not acknowledged even in mainstream medical as a potential trigger, right? And that's kind of the goal is, right? Just creating that awareness that this should be considered if patient is dealing with X, Y, Z, And that's what we were saying kind of earlier without having an objective diagnostic criteria, lab, ICD-10 code, et cetera, (laughs) it kind of then leaves women to feel like it's in their head or, or, you know, they say, oh, your CBC is normal and your CRP looks good. You're fine. Um, Or go on an antidepressant or, you know, (laughs) some other band-aid for this type of approach. And if we can get the conversation out there that this is something to at least raise an eyebrow to or examine further. Right. I, I don't, uh, I try really hard right away. If people have put on, been put on an antidepressant or multiples for that matter, to look at their genetics critically and try to provide them holistic options to get them off of that. If, if they have low dopamine, give them solutions to raise it, elevate their GABA levels, you know, get their hormones in balance. So their estrogen is not so, so, so high, mm-hmm. try to get them at a parasympathetic state so they can actually you know, function because those medicines don't make you function better. No doubt. No doubt. Um, okay. Let's talk real quick, but as we bring this to a close, I'd love to hear just kind of a personal response. So you said, you know, you're doing discovery calls often as that first connection with a client, um, on both ends of the spectrum, uh, advice to a woman considering implants, what would be kind of your, your overall approach. And then also, uh, someone who had, let's say double mastectomy due to breast cancer, is it just a flat no as your recommendation as far as implants, or would you take that again, individualized approach, or would you say it's not worth adding fuel to the fire? Right. So if I was, uh, if we go back to when I first learned about ALCL, which have been probably 2013 slash 14, um, and we were still doing implants for breast reconstruction, we immediately went back to just using smooth implants. And so that mitigates some of the risk because there's always going to be a large group of people who can have no other actual reconstructive options. So there'll be a group who, you know, deserves that discussion, but the discussion needs to highlight, you know, these are potential problems, including, you know, uh, these forms of implant related cancers and these, you know, symptoms that can become systemic and really overwhelming, so that needs to be a a discussion, and, and if you have that discussion and get you know consent, then that that's a reasonable uh, pathway. I haven't put in implants in the last several years um, because it didn't make sense for me to. What I was doing was taking care of implant based problems. I really right. was never, uh, and it was mostly have to do with my oncologic experience. People would find me and go, "Oh, he did a lot of reconstructive surgery. He can probably fix this." So I'd end up taking care of problems, but mm-hmm. in the end, that just gets, you know, problematic, no pun intended. So 
I stopped doing and taking care of other implant-based problems and just started focusing on, you know, solutions for this problem, which is breast implant illness. And guidance is hard. I think if you have existing family history, you have to be very critical of like understanding your genetics and, and your family history and your, you know, what does it look like in five or 10 years? You know, people often ask me like, you know, would my, would I let my daughter get a breast augmentation or would I have my wife get a breast augmentation? Right. And so the short answer is no and no, because I know their genetics. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, you know, I, it's not even a fair fight with me. I've, I've done everything I can to figure out, like, does that make sense? And I try to do it for all the clients that we help. Uh, along the way as well, because people ask me more and more, do I have a test that can figure that out? I'm like, no, right. I don't have, I don't have a test, but you know, if if I look at everything that I do for the patient who has the problem, I can provide color around, you know, what I think will happen, um, given your personal genetics as as the you know biggest foundational component right now. Okay. I love that. And it's how refreshing to hear an actual informed consent, right? <laughs> that's, that's just not always the common practice these days. Uh, let's, uh, if there's anything you'd like to add that we haven't hit on yet that you think our listeners would really need to know. Otherwise I'd love to just have you tell our listeners where they can find more information about you and your practice. Well, I, I think, I just, I would summarize the conversation and what I've, I've tried to highlight is like, I've seen these types of problems develop in patients with all sorts of implants based on my surgical career, you know, hip, knee, breast, dental, yes. uh, you know, pacemaker, all, all sorts of weird things can happen when you have a foreign body. So yeah. that's one element. You got to know your personal family history to the best of your ability. If not, you really got to delve, uh, delve deep into your own personal genetics and, you know, I know that can be scary for folks. Um, the genetic testing I use is not for cancer. It's for your metabolism, mm -hmm. your nutrition, your uh, immune system function, your longevity, uh, your your mood, like your sleep. Right. These are the things that, you know, if you know a little bit more about, you can really hack for yourself to live, you know, better. So I want the audience to know that that's, that's, how I try to take care of everybody. And I have a couple new shows. I have one devoted just to breast implant illness. And so it's breast implant illness with Dr. Robert Whitfield. It's on Apple and Spotify. And then we have a whole uh, way to support you. And it's through my store, Dr. Rob's Solutions. So we have folks who can't come here and have surgery. I understand that I'm one you know, surgeon, but we have a large program to help folks who can't make it, who want to participate in protocols and programs that we've developed and or use our supplements that we've developed to help along the way with breast implant illness and recovery and, and detoxification. Excellent. We'll link all of those resources for sure in the show notes. Thank you so much for an important conversation and your elegance and empathy in the topic. I think that it's um, one that will be really helpful to our audience. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
Until next time, stay nourished and be well.